This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, welcome back. Mike Smith in for Simi. Taking a look at home values across uh, the lower mainland and the assessments coming out from the BC Assessment Authority here previewed this week saying, uh, hold on to your assessments here because home value is expected to drop in the lower mainland between 5 and 15%. Here's the hot question today. Are you happy about that? Would you say, yes, this is great. Home values need to drop. Would you say no? Maybe you're a homeowner already. Would you say this hurts my equity? Or would you say it needs to drop even further? I hope it goes down even more. At CKNW on Twitter is where you will find the hot question today. Give me a follow while you're there. Mike Smith News on Twitter, S-M-Y-T-H, at Mike Smith News on Twitter, and at CKNW on Twitter. Phone the buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. Tell me what you think there. There were definitely some challenges, and we were able to get through them, and uh, I think it's going to be a fair deal for our members. All right, welcome back to the program. Mike Smith in for Simi. That's the voice of Tony Robello. He is the union leader there at SkyTrain, uh, talking after that marathon bargaining session that led to the last-minute deal this morning. 900 SkyTrain workers set to hit the bricks at 5 a.m. this morning with a strike. Uh, that strike was averted after they got a deal just minutes before the strike deadline was set to kick in. Let's talk about this now with Richard Zussman. He's the Global News Online legislative reporter. Hey, Richard. Hey, Smitty. Also on the line from UBC, Thomas Knight from the Souter School of Business. He's an expert in unions and collective bargaining. Hiya. Good morning. Tom- Thomas, thanks a lot for coming on. Richard, sure. let me let me go to you first. Um, we were talking off air about how this whole thing unfolded here. I said on the show yesterday, I didn't think these guys were going to go out on strike. And I know that Keith Baldry was also yesterday out there predicting, oh, no, this is, they're not going to go on strike. I mean, I saw this movie before, just a couple right. of weeks ago, when the bus drivers went to the limit and didn't go on strike. I just, I just didn't think it was going to happen. No, and I think that's extremely important because, you know, as the listeners will know, these guys were working basically without a long-term deal since the summer, and then all of a sudden, when the deal gets struck on a last-minute deal with the bus drivers... Uh, then the public finds out what is in that deal based on the ratification. And all of a sudden, I think within a day or two, we find out that the TransLink uh, driver or workers now want to go on strike. I think it was a little bit transparent. I think obviously the starting of the negotiations were around what deal the bus drivers got and they wanted something similar. And ultimately, as I think many predicted, they came up with a deal. They left a lot of uncertainty for people throughout the night, but the deal was done before. Yeah, so your your gut feeling on it yesterday was the same as me that there would be oh, no yeah. there would be no strike. Yeah, I thought so. I think they would just yeah. use the formula that was brought in. They knew what the deal was with the bus drivers and they would use that to build on their deal. Thomas Knight, what do you think about that? I mean, I'm just feeling a little cynical about the whole thing. I just feel like I kind of got played a little bit and that this was a bluff. I mean, what are your thoughts? Well, it it's fairly normal to collective bargaining and and in fact, uh, lots of other kinds of negotiations as well. I mean, the exercise in brinksmanship but I think it's important to, to notice that there, the uh, working conditions issues were very different in the two situations, and I think those were, in fact, the, the tough nuts to crack. Uh, you know, for the bus drivers, it was uh, having a fixed schedule of rest breaks and proper facilities for those, which apparently they did not have. 
Um, in the case of, of SkyTrain, it, it, it goes more to the heart of management rights. That is, uh, the, the union's view that there, was, there is too much overtime being required and uh, that the, the solution to that, going in at least, is, is to increase staffing levels. So, uh, you know, again, very different working conditions issues. So there wasn't a, there wasn't a pattern. It, it did, uh, you did have a, a, a financial pattern or monetary pattern coming out of the bus strike, and that, I'm sure, uh, made life somewhat easier for the SkyTrain operators, but but it, it uh, again those those uh, working condition issues often are really what uh, uh, the parties get deadlocked over. Okay, one of the things I, th- I found unusual about this strike is I never heard, or this threatened strike was I never heard at any time what the bargaining positions were on wages. Uh, were were you aware of what the wage demands or the wage offers were here, Thomas? Because I did, I sure didn't hear any. Well, no, not not uh, specifically, um, but of course, surrounding the negotiations, even though they don't apply to TransLink because it's a separate uh, operating company and its subsidiaries, uh, but you do have the the provincial mandate of two, two, and two, unless right. you can show a, a market differential need. But did that um, did that mandate apply in the SkyTrain case? No, it, it doesn't. No. Right. And and uh, you know so the the settlement of, for the uh, bus drivers was uh, you know around three percent, but there there are all these variations and separate elements that go into and trades differentials. Right. And it's it's a little hard to tell exactly what it is, but no, I I and I I thought all along that it really wasn't about money, but instead yeah. was was about these other issues. Right. Okay. Well, we'll get some more details of the deal once it's ratified yeah, later. Looking but looking forward to that. Yeah, and me too. I mean, because I would like to know exactly what the issues were because I thought that. And Richard, back to you. I, I just thought this was a little bit unfair to the public that are being used as kind of a bargaining chip here and. Mm-hmm. They're being threatened. Like we're gonna, we're gonna shut down this SkyTrain system and punish the the, yeah. the transit users of this city. But I don't even know what your wage demands are. So, like, why don't you tell me if, if before you before you decide you're gonna punish me or use me as a bargaining chip? Why don't you guys tell me what the issues are at the bargaining table? Everyone was so tight lipped on it, Richard. Yeah, in these situations, the public is often used as pawns. We saw it yeah. in the bus strike. We saw it now in the potential strike here. And what happens is these unions are trying to apply as much political pressure as possible to the employer, but also in this case to the provincial government. It's important for the public to know the province was not at the negotiating table in this round. It's different than the Teachers Federation that we talk a lot about where the employer is the provincial government. In this case, it's the mounted bus company separate, Mm -hmm. but the province also plays a really important role. And the ultimate amount of pressure comes when the public gets so frustrated, they start calling their local MLAs, and then their local MLAs show up in the Premier's office and they say, you need to do something about this, and the unions know that. And I think it's unfair to the public that they are a big pawn in this game for the employees trying to get. Okay. And I think it's fair. They want to get their best deal, but they're using the public in order to do that, and that's unfair. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the politics of this. And, Thomas, I'd like to get your take on this because mm-hmm. I think that for this NDP government, obviously a labor-friendly government in power here in the province now, 
to get these deals is is good thing for Horgan and for this NDP government. A strike would have been a bad thing. And I think for the opposition liberals, if you were to give them a, a shot of truth serum, they'd probably have to, I think they would probably be forced to admit they probably wanted to strike sure. so they could see the turmoil out there and then try to somehow pin the blame on this thing for on the NDP. So I think in the back rooms of the Liberal Party, they're probably going like, oh, no, they got a deal again. This is be- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's no question, but that, that there are lots of sighs of relief as well, certainly within the government today, sure. because they didn't have to uh, explicitly address the issue of, well, is this essential? And, and yeah. if so, how do we respond to that? Um, I think that the, the, the brinksmanship, if you will, and, and many people do interpret it as holding the public hostage, uh, though to the, the you know the workers themselves, it's that we're not going to work under the existing conditions. That's that's their outlook on it. Um, but but the issue of what is essential. I mean, we have a definition in the labor relations code uh, <clears throat> that is limited to uh, threats, immediate threats to health, safety, or the welfare of the um, uh, of the province. And the, the, that last term, welfare, has, has received relatively little attention. It's, you know, a standard position uh, that the labor movement takes is that it's only threats to life and limb. But when you start looking at these things and you recognize that, that transportation in particular immediately has effects on uh, negative effects on multiple parties and okay. um so the 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 question of what is essential i i i suspect will will continue to be near the surface of richard things. richard yeah and labor minister harry baines was asked about this last week and it's really complicated i think for the provincial government around the definition of essential service especially with the ruling from the supreme court of canada Yep. And the province is struggling with how they're going to deal with essential because I think, you know, as Thomas rightly points out, um, it's changing in terms of what is essential and how you define that. And with a greater reliance ever before in Metro Vancouver on bus and SkyTrain, yep. it has a huge profound impact on people's lives. But I think Harry Baines, the labor minister, is very worried about how the courts may rule if there is a declaration let me, of an essential service. Let me ask you, Richard, about your take on the politics of the current labor climate in the province. We've seen a couple of sort of near-miss, almost strikes in the transit system. We still have an absolutely brutal strike going on in the forest sector on yep. Vancouver Island. 3,000 people out of work for six months. Imagine yep. that. I think they've been forgotten in some ways. Um, that there's that's a steel workers strike. That's a union that's very close to this NDP yeah. government. Of course, we got the the teachers still without a a contract, and who knows? There could be a teacher strike in the new year. Are the NDP vulnerable Don't scare on this stuff? People on that, Smitty, but, I, it could happen. I mean, it always seems to happen with the teachers. That but, is the big one, right? Yeah. The the negotiations between the BCTF and the province have a different tone than almost anything else, and that's in the history of. British Columbia, at least the modern history in terms of labor negotiations. And it's not just B.C. I mean, teachers' negotiations everywhere are intensely problematical. 
And this is one of those things where there will be intense political pressure and the province is worried. You know, the word I've used all along to discuss the BCTF issue is expectations, right? The expectations that the BCTF have are sky high after mm-hmm. having real struggles with the Liberals and the lack of funding from the BC Liberals. And so we're going to see that this government needs labor, right? We all know that. To win elections, the NDP needs the support of big labor. And if big labor decides to stay home, it could be hugely problematic for John Horgan. He's well Well, aware of that. His team is well aware of that. And they need to ensure that they keep them on their good Well, a good example of that is the Steelworkers was one of the biggest funders of the NDP. They gave a ton ton of money. But they also provide volunteers. Yes. In the last election, they actually paid paid the salaries of a lot of these NDP campaign uh, men. Managers. And but, you just uh, go to these places like Gavin McGarrickle, big face of the potential strike that got averted on buses. He, I've seen him in NDP offices basically everywhere in the province. You know, he, him and his members are big supporters of the party and help them win okay. elections. Okay, we just got two minutes left, but Thomas Knight, can I get, what's your take on the teacher situation? Are we going to have a strike in the new year? <laughs> well, I gave <laughs> up uh, making predictions for Lent a couple years back and I haven't <laughs> resumed, but um, I, I, uh, I certainly hope not, and I think that uh, will would again uh, bring to the forefront the question of essential, and and it's it's much more complex than just well is this life or limb? Uh, no, so it's not essential, and you know it was a bit discouraging when a teacher a couple years back I remember being. Uh, quoters say, well, we're not essential. Well, I think they are, (laughs) you know, just in terms of the social importance of education. I would believe that. So I'm hoping that they can find a way somehow to deal with those continuing issues of class size and composition. Um, the, the, The union has, of course, invested heavily in uh, getting the Supreme Court uh, uh, opinion and, and, and decision that what they had negotiated is, in fact, in force, going all the way back to 2001. Um, what, okay. what the ministry, every ministry, is looking for some financial control and, and some flexibility, and that's the problem. Okay, we just got one minute left. Richard, I mean, do you think that this teachers' union and this government are on a kind of a collision course? I mean, the union's asking for a lot more money to be put on the table, yeah. and Finance Minister Carol James is saying well, there is no more money. They're back at the table this week, which is a good okay. sign. They are having conversations and the bctf does not like concessions they have made a very clear terry mooring the new president has said no concessions here i think there's going to be a way to avoid a strike a strike would be a disaster for both sides it'd be yeah. problematic for the ndp and okay. it'd be hugely problematic for the union and the public's mind richard thank you for coming in yeah, thanks buddy and thomas knight associate professor ubc souter school of business thomas thanks for being on today my pleasure appreciate it guys let's talk about the decision by ubc to declare a climate emergency, the university now plans to divest its endowment fund from fossil fuels. If this sounds a little familiar, you might remember back in 2016, the university faced similar calls to divest from fossil fuels, and they went against that back in 2016. They've changed their mind here. There was a letter signed by 1,600 people calling on the university to declare a climate emergency, divest from fossil fuel companies. UBC President Santa Ono saying that's what they're going to do. UBC acknowledges the urgency of the climate crisis. The university president says, we must directly face the coming challenges. 
The university now plans to conduct legal and financial reviews to determine how to pull out uh, in, of investments from fossil fuel companies. Let's talk about this with an excellent panel now. Michelle Marcus, UBC Alma Mater Society Counselor. She's a coordinator with UBC C350. That's the group that was pushing for divestment at UBC. Hi, Michelle. Hello. Thanks for coming in. Yeah. Also on the line, Stuart Muir from Resource Works. That's a pro-resource development group. He's an alumnus of UBC. Stuart. Hey, good morning, Mike. Stuart, thanks for coming on the phone. Michelle, let me go to Thank you me. first. You must be very happy. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Tell me about this movement to divest. How is this going to work? Yeah. So this is a huge win for our campaign. Um, we've Students and staff and faculty at UBC have been pushing for the university to drop its fossil fuel holdings since 2013. I've been working on this campaign for the past four years. Um, and this, where we're at now um, with these big victories would not have been possible with um, without this movement. Um, so yeah, President Santa Ono, he declared a climate emergency that recognizes the scale and urgency of the crisis, um, as well as the need for a decisive shift away from fossil fuels and a rapid and just transition to a sustainable economy. And in line with that, the university is uh, committing to um, drop their fossil fuel holdings. They've committed to partial divestment regardless of the financial um, implementation implications, or they've removed the financial cons condition uh, from their uh, their motion um, where they decided for partial divestment, and they're committed to exploring and getting to full divestment. Uh, so this is a really big win for our campaign and sets a big precedent uh, for other campaigns uh, across right. the country and around the world. Right. How much money does the university have invested in fossil fuel companies? So the recent uh, number we've heard is $43 million. And that's 40. out of a $2 billion endowment fund. Right. So it's, it's, it's a small percentage of the total amount invested by the university in its endowment fund, right? Like we're talking like 2% or something like that. Yeah. And yeah. so the, the purpose of the divestment campaign, uh, it's, it's not about uh, the physical transfer of this money, but it's really about um, shift it, shifting the, the narrator, narrative and re realizing that if we are truly going to address the climate emergency at the scale required, uh, we need to keep fossil fuels in the ground. And we need to um, break ties with this unethical industry that has been fueling the climate crisis and profiting off of it knowingly for the past 40 okay. years. Okay, let me go to Stuart Muir now from Resource Works. Stuart, you went to UBC, right? Yes, I did. I graduated with my master's degree a few years back. Okay, what do you think about this decision by UBC to divest from fossil fuel companies? Well, you know, I think uh, universities are maybe in a more politicized space and they have to um, uh, consider campus politics. But one thing to remember is the money UBC has that it invests, it's not play money, it's our money. It's a public university. So this is an issue for uh, people who are concerned about how the government and uh, those who are part of the government, like a university, use their money. And if we've got strategies that um, maybe move us backwards on sustainability, and I think this is a, a candidate to do that, um, you know, you, you have to be wondering why they would reject the scientific and technology breakthroughs that are going to be needed that are coming from, in a lot of cases, the research labs that work to improve how we use fossil fuels. You know, you think of just one example. They've got this great new campus energy center at UBC, $24 million investment. It uses natural gas or fossil fuel boilers to supply hot water and heating all around the campus. 
So they just did that this year. But now we're told that uh, it's immoral to do this. And I think it's kind of confusing to the public when we see these mixed messages. And my final point is, you know, 80% of the fuel that humanity uses today is from fossil fuels. Hey, not ideal, but if we're going to solve that, we need to improve the use of fossil fuels as well as develop renewables. Michelle, what do you say to that? Yeah, so I'd say that the science says otherwise. Like, I, I think a lot of us are familiar now with the IPCC um, and the, the recent reports they've been putting out saying that we have to drastically reduce, uh, drastically cut emissions uh, over the next 12 years. And in order to do that, we need a rapid and massive um, ec- transformation across all sectors of the economy uh, at a scale that's unprecedented. And okay. so we're not going to be able to solve this um, this crisis through incremental change, through making fossil fuels better. The science is telling us we need to keep fossil fuels in the ground. Uh, last month, the United Nations uh, released the production gap report, which details the alarming disparity between uh, the amount of fossil fuels that the world is on track to produce and the amount that we can safely burn. Um, if we're going to going to mitigate uh, climate change and stay within that 1.5 degree level. What about all the people that are trained at the University of BC that end up working in the oil and gas sector? Like I'm thinking about the engineering department that trains a ton of people up there and they end up working in oil and gas or they, they end up working to improve fracking technology, which UBC is kind of on a cutting edge on that, I understand. Yeah. What, that, is, what does that say to them when their own university is now, as you, as you put it, you know, pulling out of these immoral companies that they work for? Yeah, that's a great point. And that's why when we talk about uh, meaningful action on climate change, we talk about an economic transformation. Uh, this is not about um, pitting jobs versus the environment. That's a narrative that uh, the fossil fuel industry has been, um, ha- has been putting forward. Um, but... But but realistically, uh, there is so much opportunity for for collaboration uh, between mm-hmm. labor and between um, climate. We've seen um, we've seen uh, groups like Iron and Earth, which are oil sands workers that are working to support other oil sands workers in retraining in alternative sectors. We've seen Blue Green Canada, which is the, an alliance of unions and environmentalists. Uh, it is not um, these these workers' fault that they're working uh, for an industry that is um, that is at odds uh, with the, the the safety and future of this okay. planet. Okay, let me, Stuart, let me go to you. I mean, you work for a group that supports resource development and oil and gas included. You're an alumnus of this university. How do you feel about this university now saying effectively that you're working in an immoral business and they're going to pull their money out of it? Yeah, well, I, I think that's a little bit of an interpretation placed on what the the Board of Governors is, is really doing. They're talking about moving into more sustainable investments. And I think that's a good thing. We, we all want to see that. I don't know anyone who doesn't. But at the same time, you look at uh, what UBC graduates are doing out in the world. I was looking at, there's, there's a group that met who graduated from the Sauter School of Business who were in Calgary recently talking about their, the pride they have in some of the companies, really great Canadian companies like Husky and Suncor that employ tens of thousands of Canadians. And they're proud of the innovation, because there's no magic switch, um, contrary to some of the hype we hear, you know, we have to work with the solutions available and improve them. Because when, when you move to the question, you know, well, what's the alternative? There's not really any specific answers. It's, well, we have to do this. Otherwise, you're a bad person if you don't agree with me. And I think sensible people will look at the say, well, 
Well, look at Suncor. It's a great example. They just spent $300 million on wind capacity in Alberta. They're also putting in electric vehicle chargers across the country. Look at another great Canadian company, Fortis, Fortis BC. They're helping ships to get off bunker fuel. It's pretty dirty stuff. And use LNG instead. Now, that may not be perfect, but it is significant progress. And I think that's really um, how the world is moving, getting more efficient, using better techniques. But UBC declaring a climate emergency, the university will divest from a fossil fuel company. So UBC has got an endowment fund. They got around $43 million in that fund in fossil fuel companies. The university says they will review that now and figure out how to pull that money out of those uh, companies. My, the panel, Michelle Marcus, she's worked, she worked for years to try and get that divestment through. She's very happy. Stuart Muir, Resource Works, he's a UBC alumnus. Uh, he's not happy with the divestment. Let's go to your calls. Karen in Surrey. Hey, Karen. Hey, Karen. I don't know. Can she hear me? Hi, Karen. Hi there. Hi, go ahead. I just wanted to say, first of all, I'm a mom from the Charter School of Business. I used to work in the oil and gas industry years ago, and I'm a donor to the university, and I'm going to be rethinking my donation now because I find it very hypocritical of the university that provides training for engineers, geologists, etc. Not the university, but is taking this position even though it's a small amount of money, you have to really look in, inside yourself to really say, just, it's just so hypocritical to do this. And like your guest said, they're doing innovative research and design at the university. Mm-hmm. But it's like, it's, they're cutting their nose off to spite their face, literally. And secondly, when you look across Canada and the hypocrisy relating to the cleanest oil fields that we have pretty much in the world, and you look at the hypocrisy, for example, Quebec just bought a, a pipeline in Brazil for their Quebec pension. It's so different. Like, it's just, it's just okay. absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, Karen, thank, thank you for the call. Well, Michelle, what do you, what do you say to her? Here she is, a, a UBC grad. She's worked in the oil and gas sector. Says she, now she's going to rethink giving money to the university. Do you think that this could backfire in any way? I mean, I think that there, there. I've, we've already seen many uh, alumni come out and say that they're um, excited to give their first gift to the university after this annou- announcement. Okay. Um, so there's, there's definitely alumni from both sides, and uh, I think this is, um, at the end of the day, this is really about what future are we betting on um, first for the university students um, and for future students and for people um, all around the world. Um, the science says that. We need to make drastic uh, reduction in emissions, and that means keeping fossil fuels in the ground. Do you think? We, yeah. Do you think the university should be training people to work in the fossil fuel industry? We need to. Um, that, that's a great point, and. Um, like as I said, the science says we need to keep fossil fuels in the ground. So we need to start training uh, people into into alternative um, work and and building an alternative economy that puts okay. people and the planet at the center as opposed to profit. Um, and yeah, build, building an economy that's in line uh, with these these okay. Paris Agreement targets we've signed. Okay, Stuart Muir, what do you say? Like like I kind of sympathize yeah. with someone who's graduated from the university and they work in this business and uh, and now they're hearing yeah, this. You're thoughts I, I think karen says what i hear all over the country as i travel and, and talk to people very common viewpoint and i, I must say I, I agree with it 
But the the challenge, this this monumental shift, right now we're building Site C. British Columbia is building Site C, major hydro dam in northeast BC. It took probably a couple of decades to get to the point. A lot of political pain. Now it's being built. Well, to get to the the, the status that some of the lobbyists on, on UBC uh, campus are calling for, we have to do a couple of those every year to get hydro or you know, other kinds of renewable energy to replace the fossil fuels we use today. Right now, uh, we're not on track to come even remotely close to that. So, uh. you know, I think the most, the most correct thing to do is dedicate ourselves to improving how we use fossil fuels. It's just that simple. Let's go to Mark and Langley on the open line. Mark, you got to go quick, okay? Yeah, quick point, Mike. I think yeah. your guest is right, the gentleman guest. The transition is happening slowly. Unfortunately, the other guest, the woman, these people are radical leftists. They hate capitalism. If they, they, They're brainwashed by this United Nations climate change plan. It's called Agenda 21. Okay, if anyone but- goes and reads, you notice she says it's about changing the economy. It's actually got nothing to do with climate. They want to bring in socialism. They want to bring okay, in okay, communism. Okay, okay, let me, let me get her, let her defend herself. Michelle. What do you say to that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, we we need to we need to sh- the the IPCC report has said that um, we need a massive economic transformation, and it's not about about bringing in uh, socialism. Uh, it's it's about investing in um, in people and in right. good jobs for working people, as opposed to funneling all this billions of dollars into fossil fuel industry, into buying pipelines. It's a dying industry. Yes, the transition is going to take a lot of work, but we need to start now if we are going to make it. Okay. What about, for, you know, if the university pulls $43 million out of a few fossil fuel companies, what, what difference is that going to make? Like it's a tiny percentage of the, of the university's total endowment fund. Is it just like a, a symbolic gesture or will it actually make a difference? We just got like a minute left here though. Yeah, I mean, it's it's about uh, recognizing this contradiction uh, between uh, between folks in society uh, acknowledging the climate crisis on the one hand and continuing to um, expand this industry. Uh, and so, by by the UBC uh, recognizing the science and um, and it 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 will have a ripple effect uh, out to okay. other other universities. And the other thing I want to say is that real um, quick. Yeah, is that we we know the transition won't happen overnight. That's why we're calling for a managed decline of the fossil fuel industries with workers uh, at the forefront um, so we can get okay. people into good jobs. Thank you for coming in. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. That's Michelle Marcus, UBC Alma Mater Society. She supports that divestment. Stuart Muir. Stuart, thank you for coming on. Stuart Muir from Resource Works. That's a pro-development group. Let's talk about kids and video games and keeping your kids safe online. This one hits close to home for me. I got teenage boys at home. They're gamers. Uh, they enjoy playing video games online with their friends. I've worried in the past about uh, be them being exposed to child sexual predators. Are these online video games a virtual hunting ground for child predators on the Internet? Brand new report out from the New York Times this week talked about how Video games online uh, are attracting a predators who groom and attract uh, children online. In some cases, there have been court cases where uh, predators have contacted not just hundreds, but thousands of kids online through video games. Let's check in now with Jesse Miller from Mediated Reality. It's a media education company. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Jesse. Mike, how are you? I'm great. Thanks a lot for coming on. My kids play video games, and they play the online games. 
you know, the video games have changed a whole lot since I was a kid or probably since you were a kid, Jesse. I mean, you know, kids are online wearing headphones. They're they're interacting with their friends online. They're on chat chat groups online where they're playing the games. And it, it just seems wide open to abuse by predators online. How bad is it? Well, it can be toxic and it can be very dangerous for youth who are not aware of those dangers. Um, video gaming's been around and constant for the past 40 years. I mean, it went from the static idea of being in a corner store and popping corner- quarters into a machine to actually the safe relative experience of sitting at home and playing a video game where parents actually probably felt a little bit better that their child was not in that corner store and playing a game at home. Uh, to where we are now, where those games have evolved to anybody being able to communicate with anyone who's in the same space. And uh, I think some of those traditional lessons around stranger danger and understanding what people's intentions can be even when they sound and seem like the best of friends, uh, very much is paramount for parents before they're buying a system for their children. One of the scary things about this is you could have a predator online who, who pretends to be another kid, right? So they strike up a conversation with a, with a child, gradually build trust with that kid as they play a video game, and, and the child has no idea that the other end of the, of the computer line is a sexual predator, right? Is that one of the problems? Yeah, of course. And the reality of this is, is predation doesn't necessarily know any any development of generation. We've always had predators. Uh, we just have new generations of children who don't get common sense education about what those people and their tactics look like. So in yeah. 2016, we saw the FBI release this big report about predators using gaming as an avenue to get, get access to kids. But it right. seems like every three or four years with some new trend in gaming, the same alert pops up where we're not using the common sense to really engage children in what they're doing with with people in these spaces and even though it might seem like the best and nicest of people uh parent and caregiver due diligence does require you to put a little bit of effort in to figure out who your children potentially are talking to and if it is somebody who is grooming and developing a relationship giving your child the tools to understand where those red flags might be is paramount okay it's tough for parents though isn't it i mean when their kids are playing online video games like my kids are playing you know i'm not monitoring my kid every every second of every day when they're online so how do i know who they're talking to how do i know what they're being exposed to i mean i've i've talked to my own kids right i mean you know like when you're online have you ever, have you ever had anyone say anything inappropriate to you uh you know and sometimes they just roll their eyes and just like come on dad we're not stupid you know we we know we can we know how to be safe online but i don't know it's tough for parents isn't it it can be, and I, and I think it goes to that point of having comfortable and, and transparent conversations with your kids about why this is an important piece of, of conversation. Yeah. I think if we introduce traditional sports to the conversation and highlight, you know, driving home after a hockey game or soccer game, you're not necessarily in the safety of that car introducing a conversation to your child about predation and what grooming looks like because um, you're actively involved in the sidelines, but you only really open up healthy dialogues about behavior when you see a red flag uh, in those spaces or you hear some correlating story in the media so within gaming because it's so pervasive and the access is so readily available for anybody to talk to anyone um, maybe this is one of those places where parents might get an eye roll but really introducing healthy conversations for the purpose of safety is a lot better than doing it after the fact and sometimes what we see is parents blaming their children for the the disclosures and that's not healthy in any way shape or form Speaking to Jesse Miller from Mediated Reality, I think maybe some parents out there might think the biggest danger is if you have maybe a child sexual predator out there who tries to gain the trust of a kid online 
and then wants to meet the kid face-to-face later. But maybe the more common threat is a predator trying to convince a kid to share explicit photos and videos of themselves? Yeah, very much so. And what we see is that leveraging of power. So uh, you might see grooming based on age and and peer base, and then the disclosure that photographs will be used to shame or or put a person in a space where they're being compelled to share more information. Uh, What really, at the end of the day, parents need to be able to understand is that when they talk to their kids about these grooming behaviors, we do have to be transparent about the realities of how people might use that power. And in British Columbia, a couple of years ago, we saw an international student, excuse me, who um, um, who very much fell victim to this idea that they were talking to a peer and the photos and, and content were shared over a gaming platform. But then after the disclosure of it being actual adults who were trying to get Bitcoin and money transfers, the child then felt compelled to go and talk to a school counselor. We don't need to see kids going and talking to a counselor after the fact of peril. It should be an open conversation before something happens where they're prepared to say no and make sure that that information doesn't travel out. Okay, are there any particular games that are more, I don't know, make kids more vulnerable? Because like, I often think of something like Minecraft, which little kids would play and just seems like kind of a very benign game without any real disgusting, violent content in it or something. A lot of kids will play Fortnite, another very popular one. Like, you know, these games are not like Grand Theft Auto with really adult content on it. But I mean, kids can be targeted on these on these on these real simple games too, right? Yeah, and I think it goes to the the predator's comfort zone. If if we're looking at somebody who's trying to target children under ten, they're being more inclined to go to a space where kids under that age will be online. Yeah. And so, what I always tell parents is, if your kids using Minecraft or Roblox, using the educational pieces where the school is helping guide the environment uh, and it's a closed space. That's, that's key. It shouldn't be open on the internet where anybody can talk to a minor child under the age of 10. But in that space where we start to see parents saying, oh, it's not a big deal, it's just a video game, when we do see kids 11, 12, 13 playing more of those violent games that are rated 18+, plus, the online environment isn't regulated for those children. So what parents need to consider is the age that their children are and the games they're playing and what it means for that child to experience the space where, yes, maybe it's a peer and maybe it's a kid who's a couple of years older, but if they're playing an online game rated 18 plus the environment is going to be adults and they have to be aware of that right can can the cops catch these people i mean if these if these predators are out there is there any sort of case law or precedent where these predators are are being caught and they're being put in jail i mean i think it's what parents would like to see well ideally we're we're looking at seeing how kids are reporting and in that there are a number of events where and i get and going back to the idea of correlation with media when we hear a story about people being arrested or a large police sting that's where more of this awareness does evolve but the reality of it is is that uh, there's always going to be environments where somebody is is demonstrating poor and and poor choices and poor behavior towards minors and whether it's bullying or whether it's luring the more a child knows that it's safe to report it and whether it's to a trusted adult at school or a trusted adult at home or even to the system themselves, reporting, blocking, and then doing a follow-up to make sure that that person isn't just going and, and talking to other kids. That's the best resource that we have. And so in that, whether it's a school police officer or an international body of investigators working to identify large threats to safety um, or conglomerates where information is being shared, the more kids know that they can talk to a trusted adult and bring that, that disclosure forward, they're going to be the best upstanders we have.
I guess Jesse Miller from Mediated Reality. We're talking about online video games and keeping kids safe. Your calls to them, 604 280 star 9898, toll free on your cell. Carol in Richmond, hi. Hi. Hi there. What would you like to say? Uh, yeah. Well, um, my neighbor girl was targeted uh, by uh, a child predator on one of the games that you mentioned that children in elementary school play. Um, was in a chat room, and one of my sons noticed that they were having inappropriate conversation. And what it turned out was he was he had sent her a photo of a young person. She had been FaceTiming with him, but he said his camera didn't work, was oh. grooming her, and wanted to meet up with him. Oh, um, yeah, and we reported it to the police, and it went through the police and everything, and it did turn out to be true. He was a predator in the U.S., Wow. How old was this yeah. girl? I, I was trying to remember about sixth grade or so. Oh, man. Yeah. So this guy was the server, yeah. and he was posing as a young, good-looking guy, lonely, young-looking, good-looking guy. And, you know, she fell for it. Well, good for your son. Was it, did you say it was your son that noticed this? Yeah, my son's pretty clever with computers, and he noticed yeah. that they were having inappropriate um, conversations in the chat room. And he brought it to my attention, and um, yeah, and I, I could tell that, that something was going on. And uh, from then on, like the police investigated it, and yes, all that grooming was going on. Well, good for your son. He's, I think he sure did the right thing there. Do you know what happened in that case, Carol? Did, you said that they catch the guy. I think so, but I can't say for sure. I think so. He, um, from what I understand, he was an ex-con, and he was in the states, and he was caught in a sting. I think it went through the FBI, and he was eventually caught. Carol, thanks for calling in and and sharing that story. Uh, Jesse, what do you think of that? Well, it, it's great to hear that another kid noticed the behavior. Yeah. Um, what what you see there is that traditional discourse of of action. A person connects. There's photographs, there's FaceTime conversations, there's, there's more and more invitation. Um, what, what's, what's hard here, Mike, is that we have to keep in mind that predation exists. It's not going away. Uh, any environment can become, become a, a, a place where people choose to demonstrate these behaviors. And so if we didn't get rid of parks or playgrounds when it came to predators and luring, we got to that point where we had to educate kids. And so not only seeing a kid in this situation opening up and saying, hey, I think there's something inappropriate going on, but then getting police involved. I mean, those are all the right steps to not only addressing the issue, but really then continuing the education as a family value. And so uh, when we hear the idea of, of, of a very simple space like Minecraft then being abused, there is oversight from uh, Microsoft and that you just have to get to that stage where you report those things that are occurring and make sure that the kids that are involved have the right tools. Right, for sure. And one of the more troubling aspects of this that is addressed in the New York Times article that we were discussing earlier, are these really disturbing sextortion cases where you might have a predator who's posing as another kid, convinces a kid to send uh, an inappropriate photo to the predator, and then the predator tries to basically extort the kid, right? Like saying, you better send me more photos or I'm going to release this photo on the internet or I'm going to tell your school or I'm going to tell your parents. That is a terrifying prospect for parents. And I certainly had my conversations with my own kids about never, ever send some sort of a nude photo or some kind of a 
a photo of yourself without clothes on. Just do not do that. I mean, what what would you recommend there, Jesse, for talking to your kids about to prevent something like that from happening? Well, you have to look at the vulnerability of where these kids now become um, scared. And so in that, it is the association of shame to that yeah. photograph. Um, any type of relationships that we see in teenage uh, uh, spaces, we obviously go to this place where they can now share images entirely differently than any generation that came before them. Um, so what we see in some campaigns is a lot of shame around the idea of never do this. It's only going to bring you trouble. And the scary part here is that when kids do make mistakes with uh, images that they send to people they trust, whether it be a boyfriend, girlfriend, or anything in between, um, it usually comes back to this point of parents saying, I told you this would happen. And so the hard part within kids disclosing to a parent is that sometimes they fear that that's going to be the answer back and there's not going to be any support. So they might actually feed into what this predator is trying to extort out of a child, which means parents will find it, they'll be, they'll be ashamed of you, this will become problematic for you in school, so you better send me more. Mm-hmm. What parents need to be doing is be the safest place for your child to disclose a mistake and whether it involves a picture or talking to somebody don't push your child further down the rabbit hole to the clutches of somebody who's going to exploit them make sure that you're the safest place they can talk about anything okay i I think that's awesome advice what about um is is there any kind of software you can install on your computer that would say monitor chats and and highlight inappropriate dialogue is that possible Yeah, so full disclosure, I'm on the advisory board of an app called Boomerang, and there's a safe uh, browser, and there's lots of products out there like it. Um, But when it comes down to blocking content, it's one that I even use in my home just so that some of the more innocuous content doesn't appear on the screen, and it just just puts up a barrier for a certain age group of child. But the reality within it is that it doesn't matter if it's open Wi-Fi, it doesn't matter if it's at school, kids are going to find their way on the internet. And so what you're looking for are those red flag behaviors, and it's not just one computer, it's the idea that the tools your kids use to get online, whether it be a video game, phone, um, they need to know that those are part of a family uh, uh, collective and the way that families use these tools. And that uh, when something negative happens in that space, talking about it is, is not a bad thing. Okay. But uh, if you are having some issues with kids involving aspects of technology, any of those uh, programs or, or safer internet tools will be beneficial. Jesse, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. That is Jesse Miller, Mediated Reality. It's a media education company. I had another plan to use West Coast Express, just right. in case. Just takes a taxi to Coquitlam uh, Station and then uh, take the West Coast Express from there. My plan was to catch the Line and go to King Edwards and get a ride with my boss. All right, welcome back. Mike Smith in for Simi. Those are the voices of some relieved commuters on the SkyTrain system throughout this morning after 18 hours of nonstop bargaining and 10 minutes before a 5 a.m. strike deadline. The union representing SkyTrain workers and their employer announced a tentative contract settlement today. So that big whooshing sound you heard this morning, that was everyone going, whoo. Man, another close one. It was like two weeks ago we had the bus drivers threatening to shut the system down too, and they got a last-minute deal as well. So a SkyTrain strike narrowly averted this morning. Details on the deal will not be uh, announced until after a ratification vote. You heard some of the passengers there uh, talking about their plan B, if they had a plan B uh, to get to work. I think a lot of people were relying on the West Coast Express today. Maybe other people were trying to line up a taxi fortunately they did get the deal i think one of the things that these strikes or near strikes show is just how important the transit system has become in metro vancouver just the thought of any part of the system 
being shut down is just causing people to shudder all through the system. we got an excellent panel here to talk about all this. Gordon Price, he's a fellow at Simon Fraser University Center for Dialogue. He's a former Vancouver City Councillor. Hiya, Gordon. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks for coming on. Also on the line, Brent Totterin. He's the former chief planner for the city of Vancouver. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back, too. Hiya, Brent. Hi, Mike. Hi, Gordon. Hi, yeah. Thanks, guys, for coming on. Brent, let me go to you first. I think this shows the importance of the transit system, doesn't it? Like, I remember the last big transit strike way back when, like 18 years ago, and it was that was brutal enough. But can you imagine if the system had been shut down by either of these possible strikes? It would have been brutal. Well, the massive success of transit in the intervening years has just made it more and more clear that our region really only functions properly on public transit. It's driven by public transit, if you'll forgive that pun. And um, I, th- I think there's a tendency for, for people to think, if I don't take public transit, then public transit doesn't affect me. But the conversation uh, in the context of both of these potential strikes has really illustrated that whether you ever take public transit or not, or whether you take a different kind of public transit, like you take the bus, whereas a SkyTrain that might be shutting down, everybody is affected, everybody. Because uh, when, if everyone shifts from taking SkyTrain to driving, for example, not only are all the drivers stuck in gridlock, but the buses, unless they have a dedicated lane, and most of them don't, the buses are all stuck in the same traffic, too. So our whole system is dependent, uh, our whole economy, certainly the most vulnerable people uh, in our region, but everybody in our region is dependent on transit, whether you ever use it or not. So if you didn't appreciate it before, I sure hope you appreciate the importance of investment in public transit now. Okay, so when you say that everybody's affected, you do you include drivers in there. Uh, particularly drivers, and some people don't like it when I emphasize drivers, but, but it's kind of important to note that this isn't a transit versus drivers perspective. If you want to drive or if you need to drive, the best thing you could possibly hope for is a successful public transit system, in addition to things like walking and biking too, because if everybody's trying to drive and you feel you need to drive, then all those people are in front of you, and they're keeping you from getting anywhere. It's basic geometry. It's basic math and economics. Not everybody who wants to move in our region can move if everybody's trying to drive. We desperately need ways of getting around that take up less space, less public money, less emissions, better public health, etc. Okay, Gordon Price from SFU, do you agree on the importance of the transit system here? Remember a few years ago how we were bad-mouthing TransLink? (laughs) We basically <laughs> gave it a vote of non-confidence in that referendum. <laughs> it looked yeah. pretty bleak. And now, uh, you know, Brent said it, we had this massive success. It is actually kind of boggling, 17% increases. I think there's yeah. a bunch of reasons for them, but it gets us to that point you, you asked about, uh, the unquestioned need, uh, dependence on it now. Yeah, do you remember the last strike? I mean, I remember covering that last strike, like what was it, 17, 18 years ago, and it was it was a terrible situation, and it dragged on for months. But yeah. man, I mean, the city has transformed since then. I mean, the city's much more dependent on transit now, I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. Well, but you know, I did hear from drivers back then that they, in some cases, felt the traffic move better yeah. uh, because of the absence of the buses. Uh, yeah, no reason not to believe that. And <laughs> while I would not wish this, it would have sure been interesting to see how dependent we have become if either the buses or, or SkyTrain had gone down. Uh, my guess is unions did not want to go there. They didn't want to find out the answer to that question. Yeah, I agree. Let me go back to Brent Totter. And Brent, you tweet a lot and you write a lot about smart transit strategies. 
uh, on an urban level and also around parking and land use. Talk to me a little bit about that and some of the some of the parking strategies that you, you're talking about in land use when it comes to mobil- moving around the city. Well, when we talk about transit, uh, often we, we compare the kind of space you would need to actually move all those people by vehicles, by cars. And ironically, our vehicles are beginning bigger and bigger, and, and, and that's a problem in and of itself. But how many lanes of traffic? I've heard the estimates that a, one SkyTrain line replaces somewhere between 20 and 26 lanes of traffic, massive amounts of space that we would never be able to or want to afford to build, and they would devastate neighborhoods as we're building these freeways. But we we rarely remember to talk about the parking side of things. Even if everybody could drive during a transit strike or in general, you you assume there's a parking space waiting for you. The amount of staggering amount of parking that has cost implications, affordability, climate change and greenhouse gas implications. It's remarkable when you start to think about all the things you have to design and build and pay for in your region and the costs and consequences of all of those things like climate change and public health when you're accommodating the car. So having alternatives, not just viable alternatives, but attractive alternatives like transit, walking, and biking, and those are all fed by smarter land use, good density, mixed uses that actually allow you to have things nearby or connected well by transit so you're not in low-density sprawl. All of those things are critical to our region getting a lot of attention, not just for great transit, but as a great... Brent, okay, Gord, Gordon that, Price, go ahead. Amazing, isn't it amazing to look at the skyline these days, look at east, down the valley, and see these kind of glittering cities that you know are the station areas? And that's all happened in about the last 10, 15 years. It's a stunning transformation. Right. What do you think all of... your transit stations, mostly. Yeah, and it, right, it's the powerful combination of good transit and good land use. And right. I think we're I think we're world leaders on it. Gordon Price, when you take a look at the existing system right now, what, what do you where do you think we're most we're most lacking, or what do you think should be the top priority for for improving the system? Because I think a lot of people out there, if they drive their car, let's say on a daily basis, they might be listening to this thinking like, well, yeah, I yeah. mean that sounds wonderful. Give me a transit option. For a lot of people, they don't have a transit option. They have to use yeah. their car. But maybe that maybe that is an argument for improving the transit system. Your thoughts? Do you have a compass card? I would if I lived in Vancouver. All right. Uh, <laughs> is, is it pretty common? Most people you know have a compass card? Sure. Yeah. So that's your entry into this uh, get, uh, transit system that keeps getting better and better. That plus information. You got an app. Tell when the next bus is coming. Uh, you got Google. It'll tell you how to get from A to B using a variety of modes. All of this has led to more and more of our city organizing itself. And about parking. Look, uh, surface parking is almost gone now in the downtown peninsula and we're tearing down parking garages one thing for sure and thinking about how we've been doing things is that that is definitely not the way we're going to continue it's happening already uh the idea that you'll own your own car and keep it and take all the liability of it when you'll have an option to get latest technology more service more choice uh basically subscribing to transportation that's all on its way not sure how it's going to happen how it'll work out but you just know that the current way of doing things is in the midst of changing, and the better transit system is a really a big reflection of that. Hey, Brent, the city of Vancouver uh, announced last month that they were taking a look at a plan to allow Canadian Forces veterans to park for free on city property. 
everybody wants to do right by the veterans. Everybody loves the veterans. We want to support and respect them, of course. But I'm wondering if you think maybe you should give them. We should give veterans free transit instead. Your thoughts? Well, it's hard to say anything uh, against um, an idea, kind of a political idea, to do something uh, that's deserved for veterans. Yeah. But if you're connecting it to something like parking and thus actually incenting them to park. Uh, to drive, uh, which has a lot of costs associated for, vet- for veterans other than just the parking costs, versus incenting the kind of mobility that we actually know we desperately need to make our region work even better, like parking, walking, or sorry, uh, transit, walking, and biking. If you're going to do something nice for veterans, do something nice for the region and the functioning and the, the mobility for everyone. And we have to get away from creating accidental or even deliberate incentives to keep people driving. Hey, guys, we just got a couple of minutes left. Gordon, we're, we're told that ride hailing is coming to our province by the end of this year. I think I'll believe it when I see it myself, but where do you stand on the ride hailing thing? Do you think that would is going to help with mobility around the city? It's, it's already here. It's going to happen formally or informally. The technology allows it. I think the next wave is going to be small electric motors and batteries. And Man, we are so not ready for that when you look at what's happening with scooters and other places. So technology is just continuing to offer more options and more innovation. Uh, and it's not something that you can stop. It's something that you can regulate. The problem is trying to get your heads around what would be appropriate regulation is tough. I think the province made the right decision in not moving quickly and finding out what's happening elsewhere and establishing the regulatory regime. What applies to Uber applies to everyone and all the new technologies that are, and ways of getting around that are coming down on us going to be a huge challenge and a lot of fun okay Uh, brent we got 30 seconds where do you stand on ride hailing well i was originally for it uh because it it supports a non-car household if you have lots of choices that that allow you to not feel the need to own a car then uber sort of augments the taxi experience but studies have shown in a number of cities that where ride hailing has come in transit ridership has dropped and I think that's something that's a great concern. Not every region is the same, but that's something that I think that has given okay. everyone pause as this has come forward. Okay, we'll see where it goes from here. Guys, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Okay. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Gordon Price from Simon Fraser University. He's a former Vancouver City Councilor. Brent Totteran, he is the former chief planner for the city of Vancouver. Let's talk about a report from Global News reporter Sam Cooper out this week. Uh, speaking of Russia, it says Russia is one of the hostile foreign states that has targeted Canada in a recent cyber influence campaign. This is according to secret intelligence documents obtained by Global News. The records are from Canada's Communications Security Establishment, uh, also known as the CSE. It is labeled secret, uh, Canadian eyes only. It says that Uh, foreign influencers uh, targeted a couple of key cabinet ministers in Justin Trudeau's cabinet, Foreign Affairs Minister Christia Freeland and also National Defense Minister Harjit Sajjan were targeted by cyber influence activity to damage their reputations. Uh, Let's talk about this now uh, with my guest Ward Elcock. He's a former director of CSIS. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi. Hey, Ward. You there? Hi, Ward. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Thanks very kindly for coming on. What do you think of this report? 
uh, it's not really a surprise in a sense. Uh, the Russians and the Soviet Union before that did the same sort of things using more human tools, if you will, rather than the Internet. But uh, now uh, Russian spies can use the Internet and have done so effectively, as we, I guess, all saw in the, in the American election. Yeah, does it, uh, it, so it doesn't surprise you to see that Russian influencers are trying to go after these cabinet ministers? No, in, in, in an earlier time, I mean, if, if the Soviet Union still existed, they, they would have used human sources. They'd recruited in communities in Canada and tried to discredit people. Now they have tools like the Internet, which are far more effective and allow them to, be, to do a lot more, uh, as, as, as I said, as witness what happened in the U.S. election. Right. How do they do this? They spread, like, fake news stories online? Oh, yes. I mean, the reality is organizations like RT and uh, Russian communications uh, entities put out fake stories that, that uh, all the time. I mean, one of the, I think one of the, uh, the pieces that's referred to in, in the material that, that uh, I think Global ran was uh, rumors in, in uh, the, the, the Baltic countries about uh, um, uh, what Canadian troops are doing there or rumors of what Canadian troops were allegedly doing in, in the Ukraine. I mean, uh, they, they spread uh, uh, untruth uh, uh, all over the place. Yeah, there were uh, stories that were circulated like that, designed, it appears, to undermine the reputation of Harjit Sajjan, the uh, Canadian National Defense Minister. Uh, there were stories circulated online uh, that questioned um, Christian Freeland, the Foreign Affairs Minister, of whether... That's right, her, 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 her ancestor, she's Ukrainian, so questioning her ancestry and, and what, part, what, the, what those, some of those... Her grandfather, in fact, may have participated in it at one time or another. Right. Suggestions that maybe some of her, her relatives have been Nazi collaborators in the past. Exactly. Exactly. This, this is nasty kind of stuff. What are the Russians? Why are the Russians doing this? What is their goal? Well, at the end of the day, the Russians have always approached diplomacy on a, on a broad sweep. Uh, they, they want to make, they want to be as effective as they can at all levels. And if they can discredit their up, their opponents, uh, that makes it easier for them to succeed. Okay. Is, 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 are there any specific, uh, differences between Canada and Russia right now that are, that is causing diplomatic friction between the two countries? Uh, well, we have, we have imposed sanctions on the Russians, uh, and also, as I recall, sanctions under the equivalent of uh, the U.S. Magnitsky Law, um, uh, and that has antagonized the Russians, if nothing else. Okay, obviously the Canadian Intelligence Service is aware of what the, the Russians appear to be up to here with the disclosure of these reports obtained by Global News this week. What can Canada do about this kind of thing? Like if we catch the Russians kind of trying to spread this fake news about Canadian politicians to undermine their reputations, what should Canada do about it in your opinion? Uh, in some ways, there's you, you, you can't stop the Russians. Um, they will they will attempt to do what they uh, what they will, will attempt to do. Uh, all you can do is is seek to ensure that that governments are aware of what's happening, uh, and that wherever possible, actions are taken to counteract such such falsehoods that that the Russian media spread regularly. Do you think Canada is being tough enough on the Russians on this kind of stuff? 
but this juncture, we are being pretty tough on the Russians, uh, and, and I think Ms. Freeman, Freeland has indeed uh, been very tough on the Russians, and, and that is part of the reason why they've probably gone after her in particular. Do you think this is going to get worse? I mean, we're just sort of seeing the beginning of these, these type of tactics, that, and they will continue? Uh, it it could well. It depends on how relations how relations with the Russians proceed. Uh, there are some countries, that, including the Americans and to some extent the French, which have who have talked about whether or not we need to seek to have better relationships with the Russians. But it's that that in Canada's uh, in Canada's case seems to be pretty far away. Ward Elcock, he's a former CSIS director. Thanks a lot for your time today. Not a problem. Okay, appreciate it. Ward Elcock, former CSIS director. They're talking about an exclusive story there by Global News reporter Sam Cooper getting a hold of some uh, intelligence documents pointing to some of these dirty tricks by the Russians there trying to undermine the reputations of some Canadian cabinet ministers there. I know they've had consular access, but it troubles me uh, that they haven't had any access to legal counsel. But, uh, but as I said, we, we, have, uh, we have had the Prime Minister and now two Ministers of Foreign Affairs who've made it their top priority. All right, welcome back to the show. Mike Smith in for Simi today. That's the voice of David Lametti. He's Canada's Federal Minister of Justice speaking today on the first anniversary of the detention of the two Michaels by China, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig. They were seized by Chinese authorities Exactly one year ago today, Michael Kovrig is a former diplomat. He had been working as a conflict mitigation consultant. Michael Spavor was another consultant who had arranged business travel to North Korea. They were seized one year today by Chinese authorities and later charged with espionage. Both detentions were seen as revenge for the Canada's arrest on fraud charges of Meng Wanzhou, uh, the Huawei chief financial officer. One year later, now China is hinting at upcoming trials for these two Canadians. Uh, We will see what happens with them in the days ahead. Let's check in now with Joanna Chu, Bureau Chief of Star Vancouver. She is a friend of Michael Kovrig. And Joanne, I'm very pleased to welcome you back to the show. Hi. Hi, Mike. Okay, I remember talking to you about a mm-hmm. year ago when Michael Kovrig was arrested in China. And tell me a little bit about uh, how you know him. Yeah, well, when we talked a year ago, I was very shocked. And yeah. I guess I just went into a mode where I just wanted to talk about it to make sure that people, you know, care and notice and at least. At the very least, it seems like one year later, Canadians have not forgotten about the two Michaels. It's actually become like there's surveys have been showing that the two Canadian men detention in China is a major factor in how Canadians now view uh, the Chinese government, and it's gotten way more negative. So it's nice, at least as a friend of his, um, to see that people care all over the world. Where did, how did you get to know Michael Kovrig? Um, so as a journalist in Beijing, about five years ago, I think Michael and I both arrived in Beijing pretty much around the same time. So when you're new to a city, um, it's nice to have friends who are similarly very interested in going out to events and getting to know the Chinese culture in Beijing. So uh, we were in the same friends group and 
we made um, effort to, you know, go out to uh, concerts and uh, Michael hosted um, parties at his apartment where he would hire bands. So he was quite a music lover and very social and, you know, he took the time to get to know different people and to try to invite new friends and meet different friends. So he was quite a connector in that way. So pretty much everyone I know in Beijing knows him. Have you been able to connect with anybody in China, Joanna, that are, is aware of where he's being kept or the conditions that he's in or, or, or if he's been able to communicate with anyone? Um, we hear some things, like journalists try to hear um, some little things from uh, Canadian diplomats who have some knowledge of the situation, but there's not much that we know. He's basically kept in isolation, same as Michael Spavor, for a whole year. Um, for a while, I was hearing things that I wasn't able to substantiate, like whether he was able to have access to reading material or his glasses for reading. Um, so little things like that were pretty much as a friend, you don't have much hope about what his condition, but little things like, does he have books to read? Like that's something um, his friends and family uh, try to figure out. But um, he doesn't have access to a lawyer. The whole year, he hasn't had access to a lawyer. And wow. only some... Um, Maybe every few months he gets to see uh, a Canadian consulate official. What was your reaction when you, when he, you first heard that he was arrested and facing accusations or charges of espionage? What were your thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. Well, I covered human rights in China for European media, so I you know I wrote about countless cases where it's always very vague. Anytime it's national security, it's often code for this is a political prisoner. This is a political matter. Um, and the way that Chinese legal system works is that when something's like about national security, police can um, function in a way where it doesn't look anything like the Canadian legal system. They can keep people indefinitely, um, interrogate them and deny them access to uh, legal representation, um, which to us would seem very strange. But I think the way... Um, how public the cases have been have made a lot of people around the world wake up that the system in, in China is nothing like the international legal system. Um, and it's not only two men who are detained there, um, likely for political reasons. There's hundreds um, of Canadians detained for different reasons. There's hundreds of foreign nationals detained. Um, and some of them are political and some of them are retaliatory. Canada's been under even more pressure. The, the pressure hasn't let up from Beijing. Um, the, I think partly it's because Washington has been quite tough on China and has been passing bills to try to counter some human rights abuses in China, such as suggesting sanctions. And just um, this week, um, China's new ambassador to Canada threatened really firm countermeasures if our parliament does something similar, if our parliament adopts a bill that calls for sanctions over human rights abuses. So... Um, the pressure is remaining on Canada, and so far we haven't really seen the Canadian government make firm um, statements um, and as far as the type of legal action. So it seems like analysts are saying that Canada is trying to bide its time, knowing that if it makes a decision like whether to ban Huawei from our 5G network, um, this would this would put um, the detainees 
um, situation in jeopardy. So we yeah. haven't seen a lot of decisions that we thought would be coming, like whether to ban Huawei or not. Speaking to Joanna Chu, she's the bureau chief of Star Vancouver. She's also a friend of Michael Kovrig. She's a former foreign correspondent in Beijing. On the one-year anniversary of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor being seized by Chinese officials, do you think, Joanna, that the arrest of Meng Wanzhou, the Huawei executive, clearly it seemed to be a retaliatory detention of these two Canadians after she was arrested here. What do you think it's going to take to get to free them? China is now indicating that they will face trial. Do you think that this would require some sort of a prisoner swap? Like if Canada returned Meng Wanzhou to China, would they release the two Michaels? I think that's what Beijing officials have actually clearly said. Um, yeah. They want Meng released um, as a pretty much a condition for releasing the Michaels. And we shouldn't also forget about Robert Schellenberg, who was initially sentenced to 15 years in prison in China for drug smuggling charges. But just um, you know, days after Meng was arrested, his he had a one-day um, retrial, and he was sentenced to, to death. Like, he got yes. the death sentence. Yes. So people say, on one hand, it's hostage-taking diplomacy for the two Michaels, and then for Schellenberg, it's a death sentence diplomacy. So this has been clear over the months that Beijing is trying to go for this type of... Um, kind of these threats to, to get Canada to release Hmong. Um, she's very rewritten um, about how, why she's such a big deal. She's very symbolic of um, China's rise on the global stage because Huawei is such a huge company that's been very financially successful. Um, so they're kind of, she's like a, considered kind of like a princess. Like she's a symbol of China's rise on the world stage. So they want her back in China. And Canada has said it's a matter for the courts. Um, the issue with what's happening is that extradition trials, especially when she has so many very expensive lawyers, is that it could go on for a long, long time. We estimate from our interviews with uh, legal experts that it could take up to a decade. So in that time, who knows what will happen with the Canadians in China. Just, uh, just got one minute left, Joanna. One year since your friend Michael Kovrig was detained in China. If he could hear your voice now, what would you want to what would you want to say to him? I, I doubt that he has any access to outside uh, media, but I guess he may not know that a lot of people care, including people who are complete strangers. Um, their cases have really touched a lot of Canadians and seem to have waken up a lot of Canadians about. Um, what Canada is dealing with in, in the Chinese government. So the people still are following and paying attention, I think. That might give him some um, some solace. Joanna, you've done a great job in the story. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Appreciate it. Joanna Chu, she is the bureau chief of Star Vancouver, former foreign correspondent in Beijing. She knew Michael Kovrig in China before he was detained by Chinese officials one year ago today let's take another break on the show we have lots more this is mike smith stick around